You're Going to Die, the podcast is brought to you by YG2D, a 501c3 nonprofit bringing diverse communities creatively into the conversation of death and dying, inspiring life by unabashedly sourcing our shared mortality. To find out more, visit www.yg2d.com. The conversation you're about to hear aired originally in January of 2022. And I love resharing episodes to connect people to my favorite conversations. Maybe if you're a new listener and you didn't dig back into the catalog of all our episodes, you might have missed this one. So it feels important to re-release conversations like this sometimes. That makes this so worthwhile, just that alone, because this is one of the favorite conversations I had in all the conversations I've done for the podcast. But also, recently, Andrea went public about their cancer recurrence. And so this episode... I feel compelled to return to it. Personally, I can feel my emotion draw me back to it in the ways it mattered to me to talk about mortality in the context of something like a cancer diagnosis. So many of the community that we work with in our grief spaces, in prison, and I'd say especially in the cancer patient context, they are a community who have been put at the edge and by the edge, I mean the edge of our mortality. The cancer patient has been confronted with their mortality. I cannot tell you enough how much it means to walk into the hospital rooms that I go into and, and facilitate the writing workshops that I facilitate with cancer patients. It is one of the densest contexts of learning in my life. And of course, it connects to one of the main reasons why Doing cancer patient community work matters so much to me. Like most of you have heard me share, if you've been listening to the show for a while, my mom died from cancer and my mother-in-law died from cancer. And, and I really credit those losses and their influence, their lives, as the primary reasons why I'm here now talking like this with you. And so this week's episode, it felt important to share Andrea's episode again. I'm so glad it exists. And also, I share it as a prayer for more life, more healing, more medicine in all the right ways for Andrea and all the people who need it, who are faced with an experience that says something true for all of us. Life can end at any time. And please, may I have more. I hope you enjoy this re-release of my conversation with Andrea Gibson here on You're Going to Die, the podcast. Mm -hmm. 
Yes. As you were saying that, I was just sort of looking, I mean, I'm wearing a Dolly Parton shirt right now, um, and, which always makes me feel more alive. And mm. I'm, I'm just looking at my body and, and thinking, yeah, this body of mine is here. And, um, <laughs> and it feels wonderful to have a body mm. that's here. And sure, um, I've been through some stuff in, in getting here. Um, and not all of it was fun. Um, but over the years, and over time, I have learned to interact with challenges in a in a way that often can turn them into, um, I guess, what I would call an opportunity. And uh, what I've been through recently with the cancer diagnosis has in many ways been an opportunity for me to um, uh, get closer to my own heart. And that I've been grateful for. Mm. Yeah, I just watched your most recent video, I, th I think um, only just a couple days ago about the scans that you just got back. And 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 so I guess um, maybe it'd be worth a little time to just describe what your diagnosis was and maybe even like a little bit of like how that started and um, and then through to this newest news just to give a little context to... Uh, the listeners around the cancer um, part of your life. Yeah, definitely. So in July, I think it was, or prior to that, for a few months leading up to July, I had a stomach infection that I was trying to heal. And oddly, I had an actual stomach infection that tested positive on the test. But um, at the same time, I, you know, uh, essentially... I was, tumors were growing on my ovaries. Um, so to know what the pain was coming from at this point, I'm not sure of. And I don't know if I ever would have went uh, to the doctor mm. had the stomach infection also not been there because the pain was just building up and it was becoming quite excruciating. Um, and so I would say it was um, about two months of trying to figure out what was going on. Um, and then I, uh, I, I went in for a CAT, a CAT scan and they found um, a bunch of masses on my ovaries. And I went in for, I knew immediately, I knew that it was cancer. I had mm -hmm. been feeling um, like cancer was coming towards me. I, for mm -hmm. a couple of years, I had actually been telling my partner um, that I thought I would get cancer at 45. And I hope I didn't create it with that thought. I think it was just, uh, I, I thought it was intuition. Um, I, I think it was intuition. And so, um, yeah, I went in for surgery. Uh, we didn't know going into it if it would, uh, if, you know, if it would be cancer or not, but, uh, or they didn't know, I, I, I knew. And so uh -huh. um, <clears throat> I woke up. My partner was sitting beside me when I woke up from surgery and she was the one who uh, got the job to tell me. She told me and um, she knows me so well and she told me in a way that was the absolute best way <laughs> to tell me. Uh -huh. um, and I think at that point I was just saying, I don't care. Somebody just get this effing catheter out of me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, which, all, the, all, the, <laughs> all the other things in the moment that are happening to you because of the cancer. Yeah, right? my dad walking around the room. They, my parents had just flown right in that day from the East Coast because uh, they wanted to be there because um, my aunt had um, passed away from ovarian cancer and I think mm. that they were quite concerned. And so they yeah. came in even though they we none of us really knew 
And uh, my dad was walking around the room having to finally make peace with the fact that I curse every other second when I say <laughs> Which, by the way, is okay here too. So yeah, okay, good to <laughs> let know. it rip. Yeah. I always uh, get a little, um, I feel a little uh, like I don't know how to talk <laughs> if I can't, <laughs> if I can't swear. Yeah. Don't worry about, don't worry about it. Let it rip. Yeah. So anyway, I, um, and so that happened and I got diagnosed mm. with ovarian cancer stage 2B. Um, and then, which my friend said is the perfect diagnosis for a poet to be or not to be. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and so I, <laughs> yeah. Oh, good. <laughs> right. And then I entered about, yeah, I just finished chemo recently, um, mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago. And I got my scans back and, um, and they're clear. And I think folks know that ovarian cancer is a chance of recurrence. And so um, it's not like it's this, I'm learning more and more about interacting with it more as sort of a chronic illness. And everything in my life right now is about taking care of my body, um, taking care of my health in every single way, my mental health, spiritual spiritual health, and my physical health. And, um, and learning like lots of new ways to do that. But the last five months um, I've been sharing what's been going on online. Interestingly, Mm -hmm. um, typically just through speaking about it, for some reason, as soon as I was diagnosed, I I didn't have much interest in um, sharing it via writing. I trusted my voice more. I wanted folks to, every single time I'd ever heard somebody share online that they were diagnosed with a a serious illness, I had read it and I didn't trust that it wasn't something written by their manager or a, or a PR team or something like that. Even if they right. did, I, I, even if they were saying, I feel so hopeful, I, I don't, I, I didn't believe that they did because I couldn't mm-hmm. see their face or hear them. And mm-hmm. so I wanted to, uh, so most of my sharing throughout the last months, which I've shared a lot, I've really wanted my community to be a part of this um, because I didn't think I could do it without folks knowing I didn't think I could bear that loneliness. And, um, and so I've, I've been sharing it via video and uh, just sitting down and basically talking about what's going on throughout the process. Yeah. I mean, it's both just like simple and natural, you know, having just watched that, that video about the scan and there also is of course your, uh, you know, your aliveness and, and, and the poetry of your speaking, which is really um, special. Also, just really seeing the theme, I feel like all the way from maybe even the original announcement video, but like this presence of kind of beauty, you're just like simultaneously being what you are trying to acknowledge the cancer is teaching you, which is like, look at the sky, like, oh my gosh, the clouds. Uh, look at my shiny skin. <laughs> like you're, it's like while, while you're trying to be like, here's what the cancer has been doing to me, you know, like here's what I've been taught. You're actually literally just that in these videos. I'm just sitting, I'm actually, I was laying back on my couch after having finished your book from beginning to end. And I watched that most recent video and it's like, it's just so hard to get through it without, you know, bursting into tears that you're, generosity and authenticity and and boy i get it that i both feel like you're the kind of writer where i have this thought that is you're real to me 
in your writing. It's there's no like publicity or a manager getting involved. Like your poetry is has you in my life as a real being. But then to like also get how much it mattered to be in communication, like with your body and your face and your gestures and the spontaneity of your emotion and your words throughout this. It's it's really powerful to uh, be able to be a part of that. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much. And the book was such a wild experience because I handed in the book, I handed in the final edits, and then I think it was just a few weeks later where uh, I was diagnosed. And mm. the energy that went into the book was, my intention with it was sort of haunting when I got the diagnosis because my intention in writing the book was to um, have something I'd be comfortable with being my final words. Um, and I was thinking about mortality a lot because of uh, different things happening in my life, not not my own health. Um, you know, we're in a world pandemic. And I also had a friend um, who I had spent much of the pandemic with who had a terminal cancer diagnosis. And I had spent uh, the pandemic with her and her partner and young daughter. And so going through that with them... Um, and then, and it was influencing the tone of the book so much, mm. especially in regards to how I wanted to speak about the people in my life. I wanted to speak about folks in a way that I, I imagined that I might naturally be inclined to if I only had a few more minutes um, to live. But my friend who passed away, her name was Liza, and um, I had never, so it's interesting because nobody really teaches us how to die. I had, I don't know why it's not something we learn very early in life. So when you die, like, <laughs> because I feel for me, all of my life now is I'm so interested in how to die, how to die in a way that I, <laughs> sounds so wild, I don't want to say enjoy but uh, but that my essence, my heart would line up with. Um, but Liza, the way that she lived her last 10 months of her life was something that I didn't know was possible in a human being. I truly did not know. Um, there was so much grace, so much presence. And she grew up as a small kid. She was raised Buddhist and she was a practicing Buddhist and she was... Um, one of the most committed activists I had ever met in my life. Um, I told this story on a, a podcast recently, um, but she was so frustrated with the fact that she couldn't go to protests uh, during the pandemic that she was um, sort of doing her own actions. She spray painted mm -hmm. the names of um, women who had been murdered uh, by police um, in the middle of the night downtown because she couldn't go to protests. And mm. um, she's just amazing. And in her, you know, the last thing I saw her do was I, the day before she died, um, we were at a party. Um, this is a sad story, but we were at a birthday party for her daughter so that she could, uh, we were celebrating two weeks early so she could watch her daughter turn six and so her daughter could turn six with her mama still here and mm. um you know I, I there was this one moment where another friend 
uh, walked by her, uh, but walked by Liza and asked how she was. And she is, uh, she flexed her muscle. She flexed her mm-hmm. bicep and she said, <laughs> I got this. And I just, I've never seen anything like it. And what it did for mm. our community um, and the way mm-hmm. that she handled it, it was, our experience was so much different because of the grace with which she approached that time. And I don't know, had that not been my experience right before my own experience, if mm. I would have even known it, if, if something in my cellular being would have, would have even known it was possible. Um, and then her, her, you know, her death, man, I'd let, she, um, her last, the last thing that she said when folks asked her how she wanted her life to be honored um, she said, just don't let anyone say I was the best at anything. It's so obnoxiously American. <laughs> <laughs> and so I just love that. And, and it, mm. it, it changed me immediately as soon as mm. I heard that. I just stopped mm-hmm. ever wanting to be the best at anything. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Me too. Uh, me too now. Um, and even thinking of her by, you know, two weeks or so, you know, before she died to be flexing uh, her muscles uh, even in like, I've got this as in, I've got this dying too, you know, by then, right? I mean, she knew what was happening. That's what she, she actually died. Just, I, it was, it was the next day. I think it was the mm. next morning. And mm-hmm. yeah, that's what she meant. She meant that mm-hmm. she had death and, mm. <laughs> and, and she could handle it. Um, and mm. it was something that, you know, I, and I do, I know that's true. I was hanging out with her a week before she died and, and there was an event coming up that she was so excited for. And, you know, we don't think it's to watch somebody who knows they only have a few days left uh, get mm-hmm. <laughs> excited mm. for something that was happening in two days. It just, I didn't know that was possible. Mm. And it changed something in me um, to know mm. that it was. Yeah. I have a lot of things I'm kind of juggling here. Um, it reminds me of one of your lines in your your book, which is this: well, "Is it something like go through death like a stop sign?" You know, um, is that the right? Yeah, run death like yeah. a stop sign and keep <laughs> yeah, going. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. Um, I remember when my mother in law was dying. Um, I was walking down a hill near here near my house and. She was dying in Orange County and we were just away from her for this particular stretch of that time. Ultimately, we were with her. But I remember that day feeling that excitement. Um, And it didn't last long and it's so hard to like make room for that because I think of our relationship with dying, which is understandable. I mean whether it's cultural and all the things like it's hard, you know, if someone, when my mom was dying had come to me and been like, this is exciting. (laughs) You know, I would have been like, what the fuck are you talking about? You know, but it was a feeling. It came on me like a baby being born, you know, like when you feel that kind of news um, coming. And so hearing Liza is like a version of that. And then I'm thinking too, with the writing that you finished this book, before the diagnosis, 
And then you even said, which I was going to ask, like, did you, how soon did you write after the diagnosis, like the day of or whatever? And, and to hear you say that you didn't really, that you were more inclined to like speaking and sharing and you'd done the writing already in a way. It's like Liza and your aunt even maybe like gave you a chance to write almost like grieving before a death or something, you know, does that resonate? Yeah, I just lost my train a lot. Uh, uh, my I know I threw I threw a lot at no, you. No, no, it's not you. It's chemo. I'm still I'm I still have some <laughs> chemo in my brain, and it <laughs> keeps it, it the train whatever trains of thought it de- it deroots that it reroutes them constantly. I know. So tell me the question one more time, so I don't forget because I was so my, I was just following you on that on that. That's great. I just needed to blow my nose because I'm super snotty already. Um. Yeah, and I say I know what you mean about chemo brain, not because I've lived through it, but because I've lived with it, you know, with with my mom and my mother-in-law. And and so I'm just just acknowledging acknowledging that. Like I don't know what it's like, but I I've heard it um talked about like this. Um so I guess my partner has ADHD and it's interesting because there were ways that when I think about all the different gifts that have come from this time, mm. I I never quite understood. Like I couldn't understand <laughs> as well as I needed to, to really show up to her. And then I started chemo and it was as if our brains were operating this in a very similar wow. way. And that was another uh, gift that came from uh, this time was that now I, now I have a, a new empathy for that experience because um, mm-hmm. I, I couldn't conceive of what it felt like before. But mm-hmm. tell me your question one more time. So I Well, now you've got me on another train of thought, but I, I this one is a bit, the one that you just got me on is a big one that I, I will not forget. So I'll come back to that. I'm going to put that thought over here on the side. And what I'm wondering is if you finished the book before your diagnosis, and I was going to ask, like, did you write right away? Have you been writing? And and so it was, it was, you answered that question. It's like you, you haven't been writing maybe when the diagnosis happened, maybe sometimes, but that you were inclined to be speaking about it, sharing with community. And, um, and then I almost wonder if like Liza and your aunt or whatever gave you a chance before the diagnosis, maybe even in a way connected to the int- intuition you had about what was coming to like get this book out, like, early grieving, you know, or early processing of what was to come, what you didn't know was going to come. Yeah. It, it, it's fascinating because as a writer, I, I think people do this differently, but I've always written, I've always written where I want to be, not necessarily where I am. So I wrote a number of things in that book that were aspirations for my own living. For example, there's a short poem in the book where I don't know if I know it exactly, but it's called Wellness Check. Actually, I do think I may have it memorized. Um, and it's very short. It just It's just like one sentence. Um, it goes, in any moment on any given day, I can measure my wellness by this question. Is my attention on loving or is my attention on who isn't loving me? And Mm -hmm. I remember writing that and I I really thought this is what I I need to um, really be (laughs) put my attention on more often Mm. because, and then the diagnosis came and I, uh, and then it just, it was as, it was natural. I, I want to say, I want to say so bad. I worked, I worked to stay positive or I worked to have an open heart to this process or I worked to 
to not be afraid. Um, and that wasn't what happened for me at all, but it was simply some blessing. I don't know if it was just 15 years of therapy, just finally uh, <laughs> falling into place <laughs> in, inside of me, but I, it, it was a, a blessing. And, but um, as you're talking about writing, uh, I still didn't, after the diagnosis, um, the reason I think I wasn't writing much was I wasn't thinking much. I, I was having virtually no thoughts. I was just mm -hmm. existing. <laughs> I was existing in the moment, which, you know, I followed all these different spiritual teachers and, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh and Eckhart Tolle and diff different folks like that I had listened to so much over the years, but it was always sort of um, something I couldn't quite touch into. And then all of a sudden somebody says, you have cancer. And then this, this living in the moment became so simple for me. Um, and I think maybe, maybe it was a fight or flight response or because mm. I knew that I couldn't, I knew I, I couldn't, I didn't have the, I, I didn't have maybe the strength to worry about it. And so I just landed on this sort of, it's really strange to say bliss, but that was something like what these last months have been because mm -hmm. I stopped thinking um, mm -hmm. <laughs> or, or, yeah. or whatever. Like I stopped thinking and then I was just in a con constant place of, I could feel nothing but love. And I, and, and I keep saying love, but I don't even know if that's the word. It, it, something more similar to peace, um, something more similar to just being in touch with the part of me that is... Um, that will go on forever. Um, mm -hmm. So maybe that's my soul, my spirit, but just that being what was, uh, what has been guiding me more. So I did, like I said to Andrea in our conversation, lay back on the couch and read their book from beginning to end. I didn't just lay on the couch. I like moved with emotion and uh, out loud laughter and crying fully, feeling them on the other side of every poem. So while you might think, oh, well, this is what you do when you have a guest like this on a podcast, you plug their book. I mean, that's true. I want to support Andrea and I want you to feel enough after listening to this episode that you do too. But I also urgently, like if I could just talk to you separate of us sharing this podcast with you, if I ran into you on the street and we happen to start talking about books, I would say, go get yourself a copy of Andrea Gibson's You Better Be Lightning. If you want to feel 
a human like change you with their words or shine moonlight on your own experience of being alive and where it meets theirs. This book, you have to read it, make time for it, get it for yourself, get it for a friend. Easiest way to do that would be to go to andreagibson.org. And there's more conversation coming, but I just wanted to say that now in the midst of the show here, and also to introduce uh, some poetry from that book. You know, just to give you a little taste of their voice with their writing, through their writing, here in the middle of the episode, like we do a little mid-show moment to catch us here, slow us down here in the way they do with their poetry. So here's some poetry from Andrea Gibson's book, You Better Be Lightning, scored by our producer, Nick Jana. Timepiece. I've never known who Nick is. I show up just in the stranger of time. Sift every grain of sand from the Pacific coast into an hourglass that fits in the palm of my hand. I turn the hourglass upside down, and Vancouver trades places with San Diego. When they ask how I covered the wildfires in snow, I say, I had time on my hands. My grandfather was a clock who stopped before I met him. I've heard he was so kind, you could look into his face and know you'd never been late for anything. My mother is still a little girl, riding on his shoulders. Time flies and she reaches up to pluck feather pens from its wings so I can write this life down. I try, but it doesn't stay down. It keeps flying. So fast, I count my wrinkles the way I used to count sheep. When the number gets high enough, I'm told I'll fall asleep forever. But I once watched a woman skip her gravestone across a lake like a smooth pebble. Death hops if you let go at the right time. The Buddha says the right time is always now. My father calls me on the phone and before I can say hello asks, do you know what Steve Jobs said the instant before he died? He said, wow, time is money, but the end of money is wow. My friend wakes up at noon, goes to bed at eight, wants less time because she wants less pain. I understand, I've been there too. I can spot a scar beneath a wristwatch from a hundred yards away. And no, it is not the weak who try to clock out early. It's people who are desperate to go home. Einstein says time is relative. Says the higher you get above sea level, the faster time goes. I live in Colorado. My house is over a mile into the sky. All day I hear the wheels of time burning rubber on the clouds. My life in a getaway car racing toward the border, which is an invisible line. I only call death when I forget how to speak eternity's language. Forget that to run out of time is to run into the truth that none of us have ever been our bodies. If we were, how would we fit in each other's hearts? To make up for lost time, you did not need to know why time went missing, or what kidnapped it, or if its face was on the back of a milk carton every day for 15 years. 
To make up for lost time, you need only to put down the grudge you are holding so you can pick up the phone and say, how many days did we need each other at the same time without knowing it? Bitterness is the easiest way to leave this world, having had only a near-life experience. My partner and I have hard days, hard months, but time stops when you're in love. So I am the same age as I was when we met five years ago. She makes time for me with her own hands, builds me a watch from the silver that hasn't yet grown in my hair. Beside her, I've learned that the only real way to waste time to drag the seconds to the curb, to fill the landfill with minutes, is to let my body be a time capsule I forget to put my heart in. Don't forget to put your heart in. Regret is a time machine to the past. Worry is a time machine to the future. Gratitude is a time machine to the present. No one books my travel for me. I decide where I want to go. I decide if I will be a sculptor, carving out time the way that Michelangelo carved the statue of David after two other artists gave up on that same block of marble, citing its poor quality, its impossible brittleness. All time is quality time. Don't abandon your chisel, believing it's not. No matter how it looks, you and everyone you know have hourglass figures, each breath a falling grain of sand. To truly live is to see right through the skin to the avalanche. If we never deny the inevitable end of the story, we will write it more beautiful while we're alive. Yes, like, um, so Eckhart, who I call my boyfriend, Eckhart Tolle. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, I sometimes think I bug folks with all, all my, <laughs> I, I'm getting a little bit too woo-woo for people, but. <laughs> no, not for me at least. I'm yeah. still going to be rowdy in my woo-woo. Um, mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that he said is that uh, people are far uh, more likely to um throw themselves awake from a nightmare than they are a comfortable dream. Uh-huh. Um, so the idea that the hardships that come into our lives and the struggles are here um, to help us is, you know, and that's a hard thing to say. I First of all, I never want to say that to other people. Like that is, yeah. that is what I, that is the narrative that I choose to deal with my own personal struggles. And if anyone's mm-hmm. listening and they um, have somebody else in their life who's struggling, it's not a good idea to be the person telling somebody <laughs> somebody yeah. else to think of it as a, a gift. Um, you have to, that has to be a place that you get to on your own. And it yeah. has to be a, something that, you know, you're doing because you feel like it's actually going to help you. It won't, it's not going to be the thing for everybody. Um, and mm-hmm. also, I never want to suggest that terrible things happening to people are, I mean, that I'm a very also angry political person. 
you know, know, all of that, it, trying to figure out the balance of all of that can be a bit tricky. But for mm. me, in regards to the gifts, that's my lens on um, my own personal experience. It's it's not how I look at other people's lives and feel like they should feel. But for me, it it helps so much, and I've it's not been forced through this time. And over the years, as I, I've gotten older, it becomes less and less forced. I wanted it to be an intention when I was younger. And then um, over the years, I naturally settled into really feeling it more and more. Um, mm-hmm. Where I'm almost at the point where, um, you know, anything that could, um, I, I kind of feel like bring it on. Um, I, mm-hmm. I want to know what this thing ha- has, has to offer me. <laughs> has to mm-hmm. offer basically my capacity um, to be more in touch with what is true, what matters to me, and more in touch with um, my heart and and my joy because I've found that my joy um, lives under uh, lives beneath these struggles and it's the opposite of what I I'm inclined to think naturally, but it just continues to happen. So I'm going with it. Mm. Yeah, I mean earlier I just thank you for that. And and I'm kind of connecting it to earlier you'd said. I guess I'm 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 going to paraphrase. I'm trying to remember something it seemed like you touched on which is maybe what ha- has you in this part of your life. Has you in relationship with the cancer, the treatment. Um and I'm just can't help but connect the Lyme disease and kind of what that was like and among lots of other things that your poems reference and that I know of just from, you know, you being in the world. And so there's this sense that you have done a lot of having this stuff happen to you and creating out of it, finding meaning from it. And so then no surprise you hit this point and have this diagnosis and 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 not even like have it be the work of it like have it be like you don't have an, a choice but to be this in these things do you does that resonate yeah and what's uh, what's funny is i <laughs> so many folks have commented like you've been through so much and it's illness has been illness has been a thing for me since 2003 and i got officially diagnosed with in 2010 with lyme disease but i had been sick for years before and it was so much of what was happening in my life and i was so private about it for so many years and even when i started to be public about it i wasn't nearly as public as but friends who were braver in regards to vulnerability and, and sharing. I was mm. so afraid uh, to talk about Lyme disease because um, I felt vulnerable in a way that I wasn't used to being vulnerable I, uh, with. I felt um, it's, a tr- it's a tricky thing because um, it's a disease that people don't often believe in. Even medical doctors for a lot of messed up reasons don't believe in chronic Lyme disease. And, but it was my whole, that's been a thing throughout since 2003. So that's, that's like 17 years now, um, or, or even more, I don't know how Mm. many. Um, and, and so, when you hear that, I know a lot of people think, God, Andrea's life has been hard. <laughs> Everybody's <laughs> life has been hard and sure. mine has been, I would say, exceptionally wonderful <laughs> mm. um, <laughs> in, in spite. And there is, you know, there is a poem by 
God, I don't know the name of the poem. Maybe it's called Today, um, but it's a poem by Dinez Smith. And in the poem, they say, um, uh, oh, I forget it, but every morning or every day I'm here, every morning I wake up as a day I've been spared. Dance with me in that thought for a while. I did, or something like that. Mm -hmm. I just, I, mm -hmm. I, I love it so much. And now again, mm -hmm. my train has been lost. Um, <laughs> 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 I'm learning this and all of, I wonder if a month from now, it's just officially going to like, I'm going to be a lost train. I, no, I, I am, I am, uh, I am good conductor. And, Keep um, conducting me back. To yes. <laughs> Because you're not, we're still in it. It's just like, this is the unfolding thing, getting to this poem and trying to remember the exact words. And, and I was going to, it was going to land. I mean, I was going to pull into the station <laughs> in this really, really poetic way. And I, completely, I completely <laughs> forgot. <laughs> I completely forgot what I was saying, except to say, yes, illness is not new to me. Um, mm -hmm. and, and looking at the experience of having uh, chronic Lyme disease and then um, juxtaposing it beside the cancer diagnosis, the different experiences from community um, and friends and from the general public, the, the different responses, it's way different. I've learned um, a lot through that. But going into the cancer, di cancer and I, I, I just... I said that I'm not going to carry any more shame about my health into how I speak about things moving forward. And mm. I'm going to be transparent from here on out about Lyme disease, how sick I've been for, <laughs> I mean, I've been sick since I was just a kiddo <laughs> and not a kiddo, but just, I mean, very, my whole en entire adult life. And so mm -hmm. it's something I'm used to. I think it actually helped me and chemo because I was absolutely terrified. <laughs> I was terrified of chemo because I didn't know how it was going to interact when I already have a weakened, you know, system from Lyme. And yeah. I actually think that having had Lyme disease and and also other things like I spent a year having panic attacks every single day. And so that sort of stuff actually helped me. And in my personal experience comparing the two. I had a far more difficult time um, physically with Lyme disease than I have thus far with cancer. It doesn't mean that mm. um, it won't it won't you know worsen in the future, but thus far my experience was Lyme just pummeled me, um, mm. and I didn't I didn't have that with chemo. Well, it seems like you're even really present to the difference. It's like it's dawn on me, dawning on me when you shared in this most recent post about your curiosity around our culture with cancer and our culture with some of these other chronic illnesses. And, you know, there's a real part of Lyme disease less than ever, but there's a real relationship to Lyme disease where people are dismissive or they literally don't believe it or doctors especially in the medical context dealing with some of these chronic illnesses. And so then... I'm feeling both the possibility that, well, first I want to acknowledge you said that in that most recent post and it's dawning on me that like you've lived through the things that you listed. You're like, I want to know about cultures, our culture's relationship with like cancer compared to anxiety, panic attacks, uh, Lyme disease, these chronic conditions. And so I'm just sudden, suddenly realizing like you listed things that you've lived through. And so you have a real experience of like the difference um, that you're curious about. And then also, 
I don't know, I'm wondering with the Lyme disease, like your commitment to being vulnerable and open and sharing with your community about the cancer treatment, like I wonder what it would have shifted to be able to do that with Lyme disease. Not that you could have or whatever, you know, there's no obviously going back and doing that, but that's maybe part of the question. Oh yeah, of course. I I always yeah I write about it, you know, and my writing self is wiser than previously at least <laughs> was wiser <laughs> than my living self. But mm. I think I wrote something like, even when the truth isn't hopeful, the telling of it is. And I could mm-hmm. have offered my own self a lot more comfort maybe, but also a lot more exposure to criticism to be more public about having a chronic illness. And I say that because I watch my friends um, online and I watch them get both support and criticism um, or, mm-hmm. or questions and have to interact with all this bullshit. Um, but I know for myself moving forward, like, yes, it, it, it is a, like, I will not hide about, <laughs> I won't hide about that again because it is, it wasn't serving anybody, but the difference I've, and I think I said this in that last video, I haven't done hardly any reading except poetry in these last months because my attention span has Mm -hmm. been limited. My vision has been a mess because of chemo and also my memory as I, as I'm proving here. Um, And so poetry (laughs) was really uh, the only thing um, that I was, I was reading much of. And so I I don't have an education currently yet, but I will, I will soon have an education on what exactly is the difference because people in my experience, and I don't want to say this as a blanket statement because I know people who haven't had support, they've gone through cancer alone, they've gone through cancer without their friends. And that just sounds like absolute hell to me. But in a general sense, I think we culturally, we believe in cancer. We uh, feel like Mm. we understand what it is. I had, um, I had, you know, I feel like when I was a child, I had an idea in my head, though I'd not seen anybody go through chemotherapy. I had an idea in my head about the difficulties of that and the challenges that came with it. Chronic illness, we struggle to um, we struggle to know how to show up for people because, and I don't know if this is something specifically about U.S. culture. Is it that with cancer mm-hmm. we think is is it like we feel like we're rooting for a game? Like you mm-hmm. know, is it there can mm-hmm. be there's a finish line and there you're going to win or you're going to lose and we can cheer for that. And I I, I don't know. And with chronic illness, um, first of all, we have some idea that people don't die from chronic illness, and that's just absolutely not true. We have some idea that people don't die from depression. That's absolutely not true. That's what Yeah, but you're right. We do have some idea like (laughs) that. Um, And so, uh, yeah. And so I wonder if it's um, that we we think of it in these sort of short terms, which actually isn't, um, that's not the case. It's it's still something that folks interact with for their lives, constantly doing tests, like wondering if it's going to come back and and all that. And, And also many people, I talked to, um, a man, a friend of mine connected uh, me with him who has had cancer for the last 18 years and um, has been doing cancer once, uh, chemotherapy once a week for 18 years, which just wowed me. Um, mm-hmm. But showing up to, I have a friend who has um, has had depression in such a serious way for the last, I mean, 22 years. And we, we, I, we need to learn how to show up 
to those folks as well. And um, and yeah, I guess I'm including myself in that <laughs> as well because of um, because of Lyme disease. But I know that we don't know how to do that yet because I know mm-hmm. how little support um, people are getting. And when I compare it to my experience um, that I've just had through this time, it's much different. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, I'm I'm wanting to connect something that feels woven even into like one poem in in your book, um, and and I'm wanting to acknowledge like the love letter, the tick. Like there's there's a theme of you not just speaking and writing to love in like loving relationships, but like love to like the broken relationship, the person you're angry at, you know, like there's themes of that throughout your book, it seems. Um, and, and the, the least tiny gift of the tick, um, too, and just feeling all that kind of, like you said, somehow writing, uh, into the future for what the next thing would be because there just inevitably is these things that like want to break us or do break us, break our hearts um, and feeling the like way that you really intentionally with this particular publication, which this, with these poems, with this writing are bringing love to so many of the places in life. Um but the other thing I'm noticing, I, I, that's just an acknowledgement. That's not a question. Thank you for that acknowledgement. That's that, <laughs> that's absolutely what I was uh, trying to do. Yeah. So thank you for knowing. Mm-hmm. That. <laughs> yeah, I I I've definitely received it, and um, and I'm feeling probably so moved by some of these poems, like moved to tears and laughter, and also you know like moved to tears and laughter in, you know, watching some of your videos you've been posting about what's been going on. This invitation to here and now and um, like feeling the power of your writing and your being through all of this as that kind of invitation to others. Yeah. One of the blessings about being a poet has been, you know, I was t- laughing with my partner Meg the other night because, you know, I think first, what are all the different things that I've talked about over the years, like sexual assault and queerness mm-hmm. and um, gender and um, mm. Lyme disease and depression and anxiety and panic attacks. Mm-hmm. I wonder if people think my life is bad. Um, <laughs> but this is the stuff. I mean, to go back to my point, it's like, this is the stuff. This is the place to write from. But sorry, go go yeah. on. So, you know, when a new thing would come, and, and I would notice, like, the first time I started talking about, when I started writing about suicidality and um, and my my own experience with struggling to want to live at different points in my life, that was a really transformative time for me because I realized, I, I don't think that I knew before then that the fact that I had had th- those experiences and then I was writing about them and it was helping other folks in some way or I was hoping mm-hmm. it was and I was having conversations where people were saying it was um, it was comforting to them. And so mm-hmm. then I had to 
sit with the fact that, oh, like, had I not, (laughs) had I not had this experience, maybe there would be more suffering in the world. And that's like, you know, that could verge on narcissistic. So I hope I'm not pushing it that far, but I think of this (laughs) way for all, all writers. And so I was laughing with my partner the other night. I'm like, seriously, do I seriously (laughs) have to I, do I seriously have to do the cancer thing as well? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like totally. I've got enough topics. I really have enough topics. Yeah, you're like, this is, I'm quoting you, which I wrote this quote down. I wrote a bunch of quotes down. I'm like, oh, so many things. But your quote, I thirst for my own silence. And it's like, does that line not connect to just you know, let me be just quiet. Like, let me not have something to experience that I need to write words about and put words to. And I don't know if that line, I don't know if you wrote that line because of that, if it connects, but. You know, I think that I maybe wrote that particular line in a different tone for that poem, but it resonates Mm -hmm. with Mm -hmm. me here for sure. And yeah, um, (laughs) yeah. Uh, Mm, Yeah. And um, I just, uh, I guess I'm also, well, did you have something to add there? You know you what? I, I did, but then I forgot your question. God damn it. <laughs> Great. Okay. This is being in the moment. This is people, we are doing it. This is us actively just one moment at a time. Trains going off the tracks left and right. <laughs> tracks. You know, I actually called my friends when I was going to do my first pot, my first I haven't spoken to hardly anybody throughout this time, even though I have mm. done uh, the video that, you know, made videos sitting yeah. on my porch, but I've not done any live interviews because of the different way that my brain is working. Mm. So I actually mm-hmm. called my friends and said, um, please let me be on your podcast so I can see if I know how to talk. Oh, yeah. And what we mm-hmm. figured out was I do know how to talk, but yeah. I commonly don't recall the question. <laughs> don't recall the question. Yeah. And what's wild is it's simply with that, like the other day I was, I put together this eight minute poem of other people's, <laughs> it's a long story, but it, of other people's lines. And I have almost the entire thing. I guess it wasn't the other day <laughs> because I have almost the entire thing memorized. So poems yeah. I can memorize, but when it comes mm. to just conversation, I, I keep forgetting what we're talking about, but. I feel like we're doing great. You're doing great. It's all, it, we're, it's all, it's going to be, and we're just going to edit it just dramatically to all make sense in the end. <laughs> <laughs> you, we have to please leave in some of my losing my train of thought because <laughs> I'd be so sad about that. Nick will, Nick will. Um, we have to capture it here. Um, but uh, I mean, I'm doing it too. So just to be clear, and I'm not, again, not comparing what it's like to have chemo brain, but but there are ways in these kinds of conversations, there's, you know, just to acknowledge there's so many parts and things to like pull on and that pull us and the emotions of this stuff and, and just listening to you and having read this whole book, you know, it's uh, so much. <laughs> and so just, just like being easy on yourself with your chemo brain in conversations that have like a lot of heart and meaning, like, of course, we're going to lose our train of thought. I am. Um, and then also with sure. these conversations, you know, they bring up so much. They bring up mm. everybody we've ever lost. They bring up everybody yeah. we're afraid of losing. They they bring yeah. up our own fears of death. And so, you know, there are all these different roads. Both of our heads are going to, and hearts are going to keep traveling down as, you know, when, as mm-hmm. something gets mentioned. So it makes sense. Yeah, you're right. Thank you. Um. 
you know, I have this relationship with the things in my life that have been really scary and hard and fucked up. And, and, and a poem in your book really connected to this feeling that I had during some of the hardest times in the last five years where I really knew that what I was feeling about it and what was happening to me didn't have as much to do with the thing that was occurring in my life. But it had to do with old stuff that I kept getting dragged through and faced with and confronted by. Maybe even like lifetimes of stuff. But I'll just, you know, since we want to avoid woo-woo, woo-woo too much, I'll just, I'll just keep it to like in this lifetime. We'll both remember um, the closeted woo-woo people throughout this interview <laughs> and then go back to being a woo-woo. We'll have stuff. two versions. <laughs> We'll have just like on being podcast, like two versions of the episode will come out. Uh, woo woo and rowdy woo woo. <laughs> um, but but there's. Let me see if I can. You said, what part of your life's record is skipping? Yeah. Is that in the? Is that in the how the worst day? Yeah, what um, part of your life's record is skipping? What wound mm-hmm. is on repeat? Have you done everything mm-hmm. you can to break out of that groove? See, I can remember <laughs> poems. Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> now speak for 10 minutes about the poem. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and don't lose your train of thought. No, I, <laughs> I'm wondering about that line and sort of what I just shared from my own personal experience. I mean, is that what I described for me? Is that it? Like, do you see this cancer as that... Other, another moment of, hey, face this. Hey. Yes, absolutely. So I was, you know, I don't say this casually, and I hope it never resonates as critical for anyone else who experiences this, but I was a lifelong hypochondriac in such an intense way. I mean, it was, it was, it was serious. It, it controlled my every thought. It was what kept me from you know, eating peanuts on airplanes because I was afraid mm-hmm. I'd suddenly develop a nut allergy. It was, it, mm-hmm. it was so intense. I was telling my friends on their podcast that I, my entire life, could not look at the word oncology. If I went into the hospital just to say pick up a friend from whatever a vaccine, something not serious, um, and I, I just glanced at a word. I'd see O-N and I would start to have a panic attack. It was, mm-hmm. it, it was my every thought I was constant, or I thought I was, I thought I was um, thinking about death a lot. But what I was doing was I was constantly trying to push um, death away. And so mm-hmm. I have, and all of that hypochondria stemmed from, you know, an incident in my childhood. And so as this came up, I could feel... Um, and I suddenly wasn't afraid. There was almost like this experience of really relaxing my body and watching that past stuff come up mm-hmm. and then feeling it in me and then feeling a, a chance or a, a, the potential for it to move out because of this. And mm-hmm. I will say that this diagnosis cured my hypochondria. So I do think that I I truly do not have Mm -hmm. it anymore. I mean, maybe it will come back, but I don't have it right now. And it's Mm -hmm. so strange to have lived my whole life that way. So I Mm -hmm. do think, you know, all of these things that these struggles that come up or many of them, um, they are 
wanting us to kind of go back in time and, and heal um, the wound that is making the challenge harder right now. Um, mm-hmm. And had I had all of that fear through this time, it would have been an entirely different experience. I almost felt like um, there was a way that it was sort of cleaning me. <laughs> like I felt mm-hmm. like I was having this bath of, of mm-hmm. my insides of just uh, of my spirit. Um, but definitely when stuff comes up, everything, all of that past stuff, it's like a domino. You just, you, you can feel all of it. But that moment when it comes up in this very intense way, which were your biggest fear, like it was my biggest fear happened. Yeah. And yeah. then it was as if these years of fear just filed out of my body. And I, I remember years ago reading this thing that there are these two paths. I don't know. I don't recall who said it, but when you hit a, um, you know, a hardship, um, you sort of have two roots and you can go in the root of more dysfunction and more suffering um, or you do, there is a window and I don't want to say for everyone or at every time, because there are also times in my life where I know this could have happened. And I didn't, my mental health was at a, a place at that time where it's, I don't want to say everyone has the capacity or the biology in a moment Mm -hmm. where the timing is right for to take a different path to say this can um make me more dysfunctional or cause more pain or it can heal the pain and Mm -hmm. that's what i was feeling with this and i also can recognize that there were times in my life where had the same thing happened that other path wouldn't have been available to me and it's by the grace of who know of, of something in the universe that it was available this time. Um, mm. So I, I think that the only thing I'm saying is to look to see if it's available um, mm-hmm. because it, it might, it may be. Thank you. 
dream I had about whales Those whales that were crying for me Mysteriously You could hear them moan Down beneath the sea Included that song and decided to include it again in this re-release of Andrea's conversation. It's a song called Whale and Mouse by Liza Maytock, Andrea's dear friend who died from cancer. I love the song and I'm so glad to include it here again. If you want to connect up to Andrea and what they're up to in the world, definitely go to andreagibson.com and oops, that's wrong. Damn it. Sorry, Nick. <laughs> Nick, you there? Let's just yeah, yeah. Okay. talk to you. <laughs> Talk it up. <laughs> yeah, so then you don't have to edit it. Okay, You're in a safe place. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> okay, yeah. I'm in a safe place. Uh, go to, go to andreagibson.org to Dot connect org. up. We'll, yeah. yeah, yeah, I got to get that That's right. Key. We'll put all the We'll put all the links in the show notes. Nick, Jana, how are you? Yeah, great. <laughs> I'm doing good. You're doing great. Thanks. Packing a lot in this week, mm-hmm. going on a trip mm-hmm. and uh, wanting to get yeah, all Going off the grid, huh? Going off the grid. Yeah, nice. no cell reception, no internetties, uh, but there is electricity. So not officially off the grid, but out of touch in nature in Yosemite, looking forward to it. Um, but getting all the things done, glad to get this episode back out there. Love this conversation so much. Definitely one of my favorite conversations in a growing list of favorite conversations. And you know, like I share a little bit in this episode, my relationship to the cancer reality is is especially through my mom's death from 13 years of cancer. And then my mother-in-law dying in 2012 from, from cancer Mm -hmm. Um, to do the work I do in the hospital, visiting cancer patients uh, every week, like the workshops. um, Oh, it changes my life to be in those spaces. And so getting to talk to Andrea and then to hear this new news that they have uh, announced about this cancer recurrence, I'm just feeling all that, all the, the, the waves and the roller coaster ride of of cancer and uh, the edge that it keeps that our community at. Um, that's what I feel more than anything is they 
do not have the luxury of ignoring mortality like so many of us can do. So many of us can turn it off and numb out and deny it um, unconsciously mostly. But when you get a cancer diagnosis, oof, boy, it's right there at your feet um, and it doesn't really go away. I have a question for you. Yeah. And this, we can cut this out if this is too abstract. What do you think? <laughs> Challenge. Challenge accepted. Um, what do you feel like cancer is? Like I, in my mind, you have a lot more experience with it, but in my mind, it's so synonymous with um, like a, a creeping clock, like a ticking clock of mortality hmm. that I don't know how else to understand it. Does that make sense? Like so something like mm -hmm. a viral infection or bacterial infection or some other thing, you know, heart troubles, like feels more, um, corporeal, terrestrial. Um, mm. there's something about cancer that almost feels like being at war, but I, I don't know. I, I'd be curious, like what your impression of, is it, if that makes okay. sense? Like if you yeah. see like a, a commonality amongst people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. I'm going to throw a few things out here, but I want to be careful. First of all, to any listeners who are dealing with their own diagnosis, their own cancer, their own history with cancer, just, just so much, um, just want to be really sensitive about yeah. speaking to some of these things. Uh, and I do want to keep this in because I think it's a great question. I'm going to share a little bit of what I learned, I think, and this is like a fraction of what I feel like I've learned from my cancer patient community. Very recently, even, which even when they brought this up, I could feel other patients maybe like bristling when someone put it this way. So many of these ways of framing like what cancer is, even like metaphorically, maybe especially. But let's start with the war, you know, metaphor. Um, strong resistance to that, you know, um, and that's not to call you out. I think it's common, mm -hmm. like the battle with cancer. Mm -hmm. I think it's common to put it that way. And I think we might be in a pendulum swing with most cancer patients you talk to that that just does not meet their emotional, spiritual body relationship to cancer. I think personally why it matters to kind of detach that metaphor from, from the cancer context is uh, because people die from it, you know? And so then what is that? You know, is that a lost war? And, and I think that's all I, I'll say about that. You know, it's mm -hmm. enough for me to never use that. I don't know that I ever really did like feel very drawn to, to describing, um, cancer in that way. I did, don't think I got that from my mom or my mother-in-law, but, but when I heard it put that way, it's like, well, if it's a battle or a war and you die, then you lost. And mm -hmm. that to just not, you know, put it, frame it in that way. Um, and I know this isn't exactly head on, you know, answering your question, but you're bringing up a lot of stuff that matters a mm -hmm. lot. And so yeah. I'm appreciating all that. Um, I want to say that personally, gosh, it's trippy. Um, let's see. I'm going to, I'm going to just add one more thing that someone said today in, in a group just, just this morning. And I'll, I'll reference this person. I don't know their work. This person's name is Zach Bush. I don't know. I don't even know if that's the right name, actually. This is literally, I just got this name today and, and the person paraphrased this, this, Zach Bush's work studying cancer into these terms. And it was that maybe we don't totally understand beyond like cell mutation, what's happening with cancer, but 
the idea that Zach Bush is in, inclined towards acknowledging is the possibility that cancer actually comes in the spaces between us. Like we're made of so much space actually. Mm -hmm. And actually in that space, it's where trauma resides. Mm -hmm. And in the trauma is the potential for this kind of mutation to occur into our cells. I'm sure if Zach was on this podcast, <laughs> he would <laughs> probably not be happy with how I just described it, but that's how I received it today. And it matters a bit to me in terms of this general idea of cancer being something I think risky, right? To frame it like, well, if we have trauma or we're not treating ourselves well or getting enough healing or dealing with old wounds and old dark shadows, then we're going to end up getting this kind of illness. Um, yeah, like, like a love, person is to blame or responsible for right, getting cancer. I think it risks that, yeah. Um, but what I love, this this patient in the group ended with Zach Bush's thoughts that the the really specific way to treat this part of 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 that reality, potential reality, right, is with art. And so that we can meet those spaces between ourselves where the trauma resides with music and art and creativity. And, and so to like very sort of abstractly answer your abstract question for me, boy, I certainly depend on who at whatever cancer patient I'm talking to, to put it into the terms they, they think of cancer, you know, like how does it serve someone to acknowledge this thing? I've heard people say like, fuck cancer. And I've heard people say, I'm going to be loving to my cancer. Mm. And I, I just almost am feeling the risk of trying to pick my own way of framing it because yeah. I've made so constant space to say, well, what is it for you? And I want to keep doing that. Um, but then I just have this feeling like, boy, yeah, even now when I try to imagine answering it, I just come up against uncertainty and I, but I felt important to bring those up. I mean, those are like pretty yeah. recent. Yeah. No, I appreciate it. I, I mean, I really interested in, the storytelling around illness, for example. And, and I un appreciate that not everyone wants that, you know, because of the danger that it can be like, you're responsible for this, you know? Um, but I also think the other side of that can be this, like, whatever God or just random occurrence, like you get this stuff and like, well, and it, it can take the blame away from, um, industries that have polluted the environment. It can take the blame of like people who have created trauma in your life. Um, but uh, for me, for example, I have Hashimoto's, which is an immune system attacking my thyroid. And the thyroid's in the throat. And the story that makes sense for me is like, I grew up in a house where like, I was first playing music, literally in my room, whispering Beatles songs, because I was afraid for my parents to know that I played music. Not that they would be against mm. it, but they weren't musicians. It wasn't like a house full of singing and love. It was just like a a business kind of, and mm. I constantly was like shutting down my own voice in that way. And so I, I'm, I feel liberated by that because it's something mm -hmm. to work on for me of just like, I need to allow myself to, to speak. I'm not saying that's mm -hmm. going to cure my disease. I'm not saying someone with the right attitude could cure their cancer. I'm just saying like, yes. it does help me to like put some narratives to it to understand and not just have it be completely random, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, I can allow for people that would just be like, fuck that. Like, that's mm -hmm. not, 
Fair, yeah, you know? right. We can allow for that. But, you know, I certainly align with what you just described and feel like so much of what we do, including what you and I get to do with this podcast, but in our grief workshops, in our open mics, in the cancer patient workshops, in the prison is, I think, make creative space for us to do what you just described. And I think it's healing. And yep. if healing we're getting is just like healing of spirit and our being and like that child, you know, that got hurt. Well, then that's the opportunity. Well, you know, that's the opportunity given to us by something like cancer. I think it's one yeah. of the opportunities and I don't want to frame cancer as an opportunity, but I want to say like, there's a chance in dealing with these parts of us that are hurt, that are broken, that are ill. There's a chance for us to find healing beyond even healing that thing. And the hope is that we do that we get more life, that we get in remission, that we never have to say cancer is what takes me. Or if we do, if we do, it takes us, you know, kind of on our own terms as late in life as possible. Mm -hmm. But the, the opportunity I feel like that's available is what you just described. It's like, let's fill the spaces and, and meet the tissue and the cells and the, the body and the being with, with, a chance to express ourselves fully and that there's medicine there. Mm -hmm. um, I want to answer your question actually with something that I went into a cancer patient room yesterday. I want to end with this. Mm -hmm. um, I went into a cancer patient's room yesterday and I, I, I met this woman for the second time she's been in there for months. And you know, the hospital I go to, some of these patients have been in there for that long because they've gotten, bone marrow transplants. They've had so much chemo. Their immune system is like annihilated. Um, I see people regularly. It's a very unique context of like re-meeting people in their ongoing journey, ongoing treatment. But she was with uh, her daughter and her daughter said, I have this for you. And she handed me this paper and it's, it's not, it's a version of like, not what is cancer, but what is, what isn't cancer. And the title says what cancer cannot do. And I'm just going to read this short mm. little piece. It says, cancer is so limited. It cannot cripple love. It cannot shatter hope. It cannot corrode faith. It cannot destroy peace. It cannot kill friendship. It cannot suppress memories. It cannot silence courage. It cannot invade the soul. It cannot steal eternal life. It cannot conquer the spirit. Hmm. and also even as i read it i i have like a lineup of people that i know so well now in all these contexts who i hear getting angry <laughs> at some of these lines and that's how complicated <laughs> these things are for me uh at least it that's how complicated it is that's how complicated i see it all um you mean but they it, would it, say, no, it, yeah. it can do those things? Yeah, I think I, I could hear someone say like, I am not feeling peace and cancer took that from me, you right. know? So yeah. even, yeah. and I, I'm so glad to honor this person, you know, sharing this with me in ways they, they needed it. And just to go back to what you said, like making room for how people are dealing and knowing like, that's probably what's needed more than anything, you know? Doesn't we're, it do, we don't need to be clear on what it is and 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 like bind ourselves to that, but that we need to make more and more space for community to say, well, how much room can we make for you to say, express yourself? What is it to you? Because um, someone wrote that piece and they needed to, and now other people have it because they needed it too. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, so much love for Andrea sending so much healing vibes, all the things, mainly just love and gratitude, um, for this new stage. Um, and so glad to share this conversation with all of you again. And for those of you that are hearing it for the first time, even more reason to get it out, uh, freshly in this way. And thanks Nick for making the extra time with a re-release to get a new closer, a new conversation. Um, Mm -hmm. appreciate you. Thanks for that question. Yeah. Thank you. All right, everybody. Thanks again. And until next time, bye-bye.